tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Carpe diem, seize the day. That was the takeaway from Deputy Energy Secretary who's in Honolulu for a conference. HPR Savannah Harriman Pote got a chance to talk to him and joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, I spoke with David Turk yesterday at the Hawaii Energy Policy Forum, where he was speaking on leaders on that subject of Carpe Diem, and he said not only do we need to seize the day, but leaders in Hawaii specifically need to seize the day to meet meet their ambitious climate goals that will set an example for the rest of the U.S. So the mood was one of, um, I would say, optimism bordering on panic. (laughs) There's a lot of money available right now, but maybe not for long. This is a unique moment in federal funding that's available to support Hawaii leadership. Turk actually called it a magic moment. The federal government now has a whole range of tools in the tool belt that we never had before because of the historic legislation that's been passed in Washington. And when I look at those tools in the tool belt in terms of the technology areas and what we can be uh, bringing to the table, I think we can support Hawaii's leadership. And so uh, it's not just the vision and the goals, it's executing in a way that works for Hawaiians first and foremost, but um, catalyzes broader change in the U.S. and around the world as well. But the key there is to act fast. And so uh, how can the federal government help us here? Well, in his remarks, David Turk was big on praise, uh, a little light on specifics. But we do know that the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, had historic funds set aside for clean energy, particularly billions of dollars in loans that were made available for new energy technology, as well as states who were looking to retool or replace old power plants that were coming offline to ensure that they're not being replaced with something that would emit more emissions. Um, And there's also other funding that was available before the IRA. For instance, the Hawaii State Energy Office is tracking local programs that are using or are funded by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. A lot of that has to do with clean energy projects, some of them on a smaller, more local scale. And then one of the big points that David Turk broke up brought up was that we need to bring manufacturing back to the United States for clean energy. We saw supply chains over the last two years that hampered a lot of products and projects here in Hawaii, and he's hoping that we can redirect the supply chain. So if it's not in Hawaii, David Green or Josh Green yesterday said he would jump for joy if we had manufacturing of these programs in Hawaii. But even if they're in the U.S., we would probably be able to move through that process a lot more quickly. And so, gosh, uh, what else was uh, his uh, uh, priority yesterday? Well, one thing he was very specific on was the need for manpower. We're trying to completely change over every aspect of our lives when we're considering clean energy and our goals for climate change. And so we need people who are trained to do that. We need people who are not just excited about the clean energy transition, but who have the skills to put it in place. Turt said that education is a crucial part of creating a workforce that can build our clean energy future. There is a passion and a commitment in this youngest generation that's inspiring. And what we, I think, need to do is uh, help inform their career choices and help channel that for real-world impact, right? It's great to be passionate. It's phenomenal to see uh, folks out there um, protesting and doing marches and other kinds of things and holding political leaders' feet to the fire. What we need to do is translate that into where does that impact real-world action? How do we accelerate the pace of what we need to be doing going forward? Yeah, we do want to see the young people passionate about uh, what we can do to, uh, to 
I guess, affect climate change. Yes, and it was exciting to be at the forum because it did take place on the University of Hawaii at Manoa's campus, and there were a lot of young people in in attendance there who might be considering this as a path for their future. So there was uh, support from the university, and the provost was in attendance and on a panel with David Turk about how we can be an educational hub for getting people excited, not just about research on clean energy transition, but the practicality and the infrastructure of clean energy. So that, I would say, was one of the most optimistic things about this forum. And then also capping off Climate Action Week, which this forum was a part of, looking at all of our objectives in terms of fighting climate change and how we can get young people more involved in the solutions. So how are we doing toward our goal? (laughs) Well, it's always, you know, one step forward, two steps back when you're talking about climate action. So yesterday, Clearway Energy actually just announced that there's another solar farm that has come online in central Oahu. That is a large utility-scale solar and storage project that will help generate energy for folks here. And there are also new community-owned solar projects that were announced yesterday coming to Molokai that could theoretically meet over 20% of Molokai's energy needs. But when we're looking at early projections over the last year, 2022, we actually saw overall carbon emissions start to creep up. So again, that key is urgency. We don't have time to debate necessarily whether or not we need solutions. We need to identify and act upon solutions now. And that's what every policy leader, both at the state level and then also those who are participating nationally, said yesterday at the policy forum. So yeah, I can see that a bit of panic, like, oh my gosh, we've got to really step this up. Absolutely. (laughs) All righty, eat eat our Wheaties (laughs) and let's get greener. All right, but thank you so much, Savannah. Of course. Happy Friday, Catherine. (laughs) Yes, we have been talking with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote about her coverage of the Deputy Energy Secretary who's in town this week. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. You're tuned to the conversation here on on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Have you visited your public library lately? Well, for today's quiz, we're diving into the history of our public library system. Hawaii's statewide library system has more than 51 branches across six islands. But it all started with one building, our first public library. The Library of Hawaii opened on February 1st in 1913 in downtown Honolulu, where it still stands today. It offered more than 30,000 volumes to residents of Honolulu, including several works from the personal collections of King Kalakaua, Queen Kapi'olani, Queen Emma, and Princess Bernice Pawahi Bishop. The building cost $127,000 to construct. In today's terms, that's more than $3.2 million. The Territorial Legislature contributed $27,000 to the library's construction, 
but the majority of the cost was covered by one individual. For today's quiz, we want to know what philanthropist donated $100,000 to construct the Library of Hawaii. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. This month's burial of Abigail Keikau Kawananakoa has taken a decade to prepare for. It started with her request before the State Land Board for permission to be allowed to join her adoptive parents who were buried at the Royal Cemetery. Not everyone in the Hawaiian community agreed it was appropriate for her to be interred there. Some consider her a princess, some do not. The bird deferred to the late Kahu William Maioho, whose family was charged with taking care of the ali'i. He believed it was appropriate to honor her wish to be buried with her family. His son, Bill Maioho Jr., is the current caretaker. On a visit to Mauna Ala this week, we bumped into Robbie Alm, who was appointed by the court to look out for Kawanakakoa's interests after she suffered a stroke. Alm is preparing the details of a memorial service at the Royal Mausoleum and the plans for her lying in state at Iolani Palace. He talked about the recent landscaping improvements at Mauna Ala that Kawananakoa paid for in the state-run cemetery. Here's Alm. I became Abigail Kawananakoa's conservator in July, August of 2020. And one of the conversations we had a lot about was Mauna Ala and the permission that had been granted to her to be buried here and construction of her tomb and all of that. You know, she's also a member of her foundation of Malama Mauna Ala, the group of Ali Trust that have taken responsibility uh, along with the state for the grounds and, and the buildings here. And one of the things they talked about was landscaping. And, you know, I shared with her my sense that the landscaping was not in great shape. It was on the list of things Malama Mona Ala wanted to get to. So at one point she just said, <laughs> take care of it, you know, make it right. You know, I'm going to go up there and I'd really like it to be right. And so talking to the state, talking to Kahu Mayoho and, and others, identified some things that weren't right here. There's supposed to be one royal palm for every member of the family buried here. So we count the number of Ali who are buried here, there's supposed to be a royal palm for each. There were six missing. You know, six missing means six of them, in theory, aren't being honored. So there are now six new royal palms so that there's one for each. And in fact, a seventh was purchased and is at the nursery that'll go next to hers because when she goes in, there'll be one more royal palm needed. And so the location and that tree already exists. And when the time comes, it'll join. The other thing missing were hollow trees. And hollow trees are, you know, uh, very important here, um, related to, you know, honoring death and, the, you know, the, those who pass. So, you, you know, and two of them were right at the entrance. On the inside and outside of the entrance, they were missing. Not only were they missing, but they had to be mailed. So we're actually able to find male hollow trees. I'm not an expert, so I'm not the one to tell you what a male or female hollow tree is. 
and then alongside the fence there there were two in the two corners of the fence and then over by the Kamehameha Court. So those five hollow were also replaced. Uh, a lot of the trees hadn't been trimmed here in a while. The royal palms are taken care of, but but the other, you know, the sausage tree and the Kamani trees and you know, for whom there's a lot of history. I mean, planted by Queen Emma in some cases, Queen Liliuokalani and others. So they were all trimmed and so if you come up here all their canopies are much more open. The flag flies uh, much stronger with the canopies open because the trees now the wind goes straight through them and then there are planter beds along the front driveway and in the outside right at the entryway and all of those were replanted and you know ohia lehua and other ferns so almost all native plants so you know that that was a gift from her to you know those she's joining and her sense of making it right um, you know, before she came. And so we're able to tell her, you know, before she passed that, that all of that had been done and, you know, let her kind of see what it looked like and, and that it had been done to her standards, which is done right. So. And it was back in what, 2013, 2015, that she had asked for permission? Right, 2013. To, to be buried up right. here. Up, right. Anything you can share about the design of the tomb? Sure. Uh, the tomb was designed by her and a builder named Robert Manditch. You know, his firm is called Sacred Earth Architecture. So I mean, for him, objects like this tomb for her were very critical. What she wanted to do was match the Wiley tomb, which is across the way. So if you know Mauna Ala, the Wiley tomb is closest to the gate on the Malka side. She'll be closest to the gate on the Makai side. Wiley set back, she'll be set back. So she'll be down towards the new Wanu Memorial Wall. Four pillars, a roof, and then a tomb underneath it. So it matches Wiley very much in its look. Though hers is much short. I mean, Wiley is actually a fairly imposing structure. Hers is eight feet tall total. So actually, if you stand on the driveway, you will be able to kind of look over the, the top of hers. Right. It is black. If you come on the Mount Olive grounds, it's directly across from the obelisk and the gravel area that's above the Kalakaua tomb, all of which is black. So, you know, it, it's intended to kind of match the look of the Kalakaua tomb. Set back, as I say, eight feet tall, black granite. Okay, which is part of the symmetry, just part of making it all right. Yes, and the notion that the two, Wiley and, and them, were kind of at the entrance exit, you know, and I don't know, you know, stretch the analogy of guardian too far but i think she wanted not to stand out in an inappropriate way and that matching wiley from an architectural from a design standpoint felt right to her so. and when she applied for the permit yeah. what thought went into the upkeep for that tomb actually she was required in the permission to not only provide for an ongoing maintenance fund and so there's an endowment fund to take care of maintenance every year but also bonded so that if anything ever happened structurally to that tomb, act of God destroyed it or whatever, she's responsible or in perpetuity, she and her foundation are responsible to replace it at no cost to the state. You know, so I think it's very clear that, that the Board of Land and Natural Resources was not accepting it here to cost the taxpayers anything. All of that in the right of entry we signed has to be taken care of entirely by her. And then the Ali'i Trust also helped with some of the upkeep? Yes, I think the Ali'i Trust gathered together. I don't know what year they started, but Malama Mauna'ala is a group of the Ali'i Trust. 
and they jointly share responsibility for this. I mean, you know, it's primarily state jurisdiction, but I think each of the trusts is connected to one or more of the structures here. You know, so Lily Okalani Trust, clearly to Kalakaua, Queen Emma, to John Young, to Kamehameha, but also to Wiley, where Emma relatives are. You know, it's just so each of us, Kuana Nakoa, obviously hers, but also the Kalakaua crypt is very much her responsibility, her and, foundation's responsibility. And Kamehameha schools. Oh, yeah. The they have the bishop tomb plus the Kamehameha one, Kamehameha crypts. All of them share in this, which is you know, I think appropriate and, and I think everybody feels strongly that that this is a joint responsibility. You know, it doesn't take away from the states, but why wouldn't the Ali'i Trust um, add in their support for this and try to make sure things are done right? And, you know, um, all the state stuff has to go through a state budget and legislative approval process. And the Ali'i Trust in some ways can be a little more agile. And if something needs to be done quickly, we can work on it like the landscaping you know and that was a gift from her and then we could just do that with permission from the state and obviously from Kahu to come on and do the work and he helped pick the plants and you know was involved in the selection of all of that so I mean you know I have to have great respect for Kahu Maioho and making sure this all fits with his sense of what's right. Make it right. Yeah. Mahalo. We've been hearing from Robbie Alm, a court-appointed conservator for the late Abigail Kawananakoa. He's making the final arrangements for Kawananakoa's memorial service. She will lie in state at Iolani Palace Sunday, the 22nd, with a special ceremony at Mauna Ala for an invitation-only gathering, as the cemetery chapel has very limited space. Construction on Kawananakoa's tomb will take place following the Onipa'a ceremony on Tuesday. Members of the Hawaiian community traditionally gather at the cemetery and then march to Ilani Palace to mark the anniversary of the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the 2023 Executive MBA is January 19th, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Mariska Hargate of Law & Order SVU if her job ever carried over to real life. Are you a good detective? Are you, like, good at finding your husband's lost phone, for example? Well, I found his first two mistresses, like this. Oh. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. This week, we'll ask author and MacArthur genius George Saunders if he uh, writes short stories in real life. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radiolab. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. The state of the historic trees along Banyan Drive in Hilo on the island of Hawaii is the subject of today's reality check. A Honolulu Civil Beat reporter, Paula Dahman, joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So how are our trees there <laughs> on this Friday? 
Um, well, they're definitely ailing. Um, they've been infested by this gall wasp that is burrowing into the leaves and eating them and weakening the immune systems. And they're, they're kind of in rough shape, actually. And these are historic trees. Tell us the story. Well, um, they started being planted in the 1930s and 40s. There's um, currently about 50 of them. And they were planted by a lot of, you know, dignitaries, um, people like Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, Amelia Earhart, Babe Ruth, uh, Richard Nixon, King George V. Um, the list goes on. But, um, you know, it was originally a really um, popular location that was marketed in airline magazines and other visitor industry collateral. And, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of fallen on hard times, the whole area and the Flight of the trees is just kind of symbolic of the overall decline of Banyan Drive. So they're in sorry shape. So what efforts are underway to get rid of this wasp if they can? Um, you know, it's really in its nascent stages. Um, there's kind of ambiguity as to who really is responsible for caring for the trees. Um, some of the trees are on DLNR land, state land. Others are on county land um, and you know really no no entity has sort of stepped up to the plate to to maintain the trees even before this wasp infestation started but there is a new nonprofit that has sprung up of concerned citizens who really want to like take steps to make sure that the banyan trees survive it's a group called friends of historic banyan drive they just incorporated about two months ago and they've already gotten a $7,500 grant um, from a program of DLNR to try treating, um, you know, 10 or 11 of the trees with this um, chemical called Safari. And um, actually just this week they did um, start spraying some of the trees. But, you know, this is only a Band-Aid solution. I mean, there's many other trees, and they even if they can eradicate the wasp, the, the trees need long-term maintenance and so the group is trying to you know encourage the county and the state to uh, work with them and um, the arborist uh, committee of the county and just come up with like a long-term strategy for dealing with this issue and what does uh, big island mayor mitch roth have to say about all these well i reached out to him and he kind of said well it depends on which trees you're talking about and you know he referenced the fact that the public works department trims some of the aerial roots that come down over the over the roadway and you know that's what they do but it's really a dlnr thing and then dlnr said no it's more of a county thing so i mean it's it's obvious that nobody's really taking charge of the matter so um we'll see what happens and after the article prompts some discussion you know hopefully some solution will emerge well, I know at one time there was talk about trying to get those trees designated as exceptional trees, and I don't know you know, where that went. It probably didn't get much support from the county, um, but who knows? Yeah, like you said, as word gets out and people actually see uh, that these trees are in bad shape, that um, maybe that'll prompt some action. Yeah, well, the Outdoor Circle, which is a longtime environmental organization here in the state, um, they would like to see the entire stand of banyan trees down there designated as exceptional trees and i think that that was the plan years and years ago um i'm not sure how far it got but 
apparently the documents that um, are associated with that, they, they burned in a fire uh, years ago. And so they would like to revive that effort and get the trees designated as exceptional. And that would unlock, I think, some funding and some caretaking. And I think that that might be part of the solution, ideally. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. But thank you, Paula. You bet. Thank you. That was reporter Paula Dahman with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read her story on this issue. Head to civilbeat.org. Support education reporting on HPR. Anybody who lives past Hanalei, it's all single-lane bridges. Kapua Chandler is the school director of Namahana School, a new charter school based in Kilauea. Getting approved is just the start for Namahana. They still have to construct their facilities and get a long-term agreement with the state to operate. But having a nearby school and the hope to create future leaders for Kauai's North Shore community is worth the effort. I think the power of our school and the beauty of our school is to be able to be one of those foundations in the community that really hold a place for the future generations and it's really is just a foundation that future generations will continue to build and build and build on. Chandler expects the school to open its doors in 2025. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Brian Thomas Swim, author of Cosmogenesis. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how the story of the universe has direct impact on the story of our personal lives. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. first month of life for a species known as a day octopus is a bit of a mystery for scientists. At an octopus rearing facility in Kona, scientists are trying to unlock those secrets. We paid a visit to the Kanaloa octopus farm recently to understand its place at the Natural Energy Laboratory on the island of Hawaii. There's a synergy between aquaculture facilities, some which rear marine creatures for food, but the octopus farm is not one of them. Instead, it offers ecotours and conservation science is its focus. We learn octopus get curious when they hear high-pitched sounds, so baby talk has been known to coax them out of their lair. Did you know that an octopus has not one but three hearts? Take a listen. So they have two hearts that control each of their gills, 
and then one heart that controls the rest of their body function, which includes pumping blood throughout them. So humans have red, iron-rich blood, and octopuses have really copper-rich blood. Does anyone want to guess what color an octopus's blood is? Any color? Yes. Oh, really close. They have blue blood. So octopuses have blue, copper-rich blood. This is really awesome for them. It helps oxygenate them in different temperatures, and it also has an amazing clotting ability. So if a predator were to bite off their arm in the wild, they're not going to leave a blood or a scent trail, which is really, really nice for them to help them escape. Factoids about the octopus. Well, Dan Jackson is the manager of the Kanaloa Octopus Farm. He says the facility is in the process of rebranding, so its name better reflects its research. The company also hopes to expand its facility later this year as the demand for its interactive tours is growing. So we do educational tours uh, to teach people about octopus biology and what we are actually doing with our research there. Um, You know, unfortunately, there's not really an aquarium on the Big Island where people can go, you know, see sea life and get a little bit of a closer interaction with stuff that they wouldn't normally see. So we seem to sort of fill that niche for a lot of people who kind of want a aquarium-like attraction out here. Well, when I was there, there were many families with young children, you know, who were looking for a science experience for their young ones, and they were just thrilled with the experience. You know, they'd gone to a a number of those eco-tours. So the company's been around for less than five years, so we're, you know, a fairly new company still. What we are doing is reproductive research into the day octopus, which is one of the more common octopus species out here in Hawaii. It's a really popular one. Lots of people fish for them, use them for bait, stuff like that. But they're also just really fun to see because out in the ocean, they're really good at hiding under rocks and stuff like that. I know particularly during COVID when kind of everything was shut down, we had a lot of local families coming in with their kids to kind of have that be their science lesson for the week while they were doing homeschooling and stuff like that. Well, I imagine with that film, The Octopus Teacher, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in taco. Yeah, absolutely. We did see, you know, a lot of questions about that when it came out, and we try to just kind of demystify the octopus and just try and share the information that we have and the information that the overall scientific community has kind of gathered and published a lot of stuff about. Your name includes the word farm, but you're not farming octopus to eat or anything like that. No. um, So that was just the name that the owner went with when he started it, uh, because where we are, there are a lot of fish farms and stuff like that. So it was kind of not the plan to, you know, start growing them for consumption or anything like that. Our plan is to learn how that we can raise octopus in tanks and stuff like that. And then one that will allow us to just understand the life cycle of the octopus better. There are a lot of things that people don't know about them, and they're very hard to study out in the ocean. So, you know, by learning more about their life cycle, we're able to kind of know more about the animals overall. And then if we can crack that really, really tough larval stage and actually get them up to a juvenile, at that point, we would feel like we're a lot more prepared in case anything ever does happen to the populations around here. Right now, they are not threatened or endangered or anything like that. But if you look at what's happening in oceans all around the world, a lot of species are declining, especially a lot of species that are fished by people. So the hope is that if we can figure out how to raise these animals through their really delicate larval stage, that in the future, if there are you know areas where this particular species is becoming overfished or threatened, because it's a very widespread species, these are everywhere from the east coast of Australia, all the way out here to Hawaii, all through, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, and all like that. So if we can figure out how to captivity, that would just give people an option 
to either, you know, potentially somebody could farm raise them. There are going to be a lot of issues in that because of the way their Senate social hierarchies are. What we hope to achieve is getting to a point where you could raise them up to juveniles and then release them out into the ocean as a restocking effort in places that have been overfished and supplement the wild populations. Well, I know when we've uh, visited other places and talked to uh, researchers, they mentioned that, you know, there are places where, let's say, some of these species uh, have been hit by a virus and and maybe, you know, a a certain type of of, uh, these uh, marine creatures have been wiped out. And so, yeah, if their research can help sustain marine animals, that that's all part of the the mysteries that we've got to unlock for the the long haul. Yeah, exactly. So nobody knows what the future holds. Most people are pretty certain that uh, climate change is going to continue to affect the whole planet, but especially kind of shallower tropical waters, uh, you're going to see a lot more warmer water, which is going to lead to more coral bleaching and things like that. And like you're saying, there could always be disease outbreaks or environmental, you know, disasters that really could detrimentally impact a population in a local area. And then we would hopefully be able to kind of help that population out by being able to raise them and then release them. Do you know of many other facilities that study this type of octopus? So I know there are, you know, several aquariums that do work with octopus. As far as I'm aware, I, I don't know of any that are working with this particular species because it's not really a, it's not found in like California where you're going to see more of like the aquariums and universities that are going to be doing research work like that. It's everything then from reproduction to what they eat, right? You know, the adult, we're, you know, very able to care for them, keep them healthy, get them to grow up pretty well, and then have successful mating and good incubation and high hatch rates. And it's really just that first month of their life when they hatch out of the egg as what's known as a paralarva. And this is where nobody actually knows what those paralarva are eating out in the ocean. You know, there are tens of thousands of species of zooplankton that they could be feeding on, and we don't know exactly which ones are best for them or if they are, you know, preferentially feeding on one or another or if they're just kind of eating whatever's there. So a big part of our research right now is trying to learn exactly what food or prey items those paralarvae they need to actually grow and thrive through that first month or so of their life. And how many uh, octopus do you have? We usually have between 15 and 20 adult octopus. Most of them we get from a gentleman who actually catches them for us. He's just really good at it. He knows how to catch octopus. Some people can just find them better than others. But we also do get them from other companies down near us. So at Nelhod, there are several very large pipelines that are sucking up thousands and thousands of gallons per minute. And that water is being used by all the different companies down there for all sorts of stuff, from algae to clams to abalone, fish, whatever it is. And every once in a while, a little juvenile octopus will get sucked up that pipeline, and it'll get caught in the pre-filtration of these companies. And when they're cleaning their filters out, they find a little octopus. Give us a call, and we'll go pick it up. This is why we're pretty confident that the larval stage is the real bottleneck for us, because we've gotten juvenile octopus. I think the smallest we got was 0.8 grams. It's about the size of the tip of my pinky finger. And so we've been able to raise them up to adults from, you know, less than a gram and then have them successfully reproduce. So that's what really has convinced us that it's really that larval stage. The, the paralarvae are just such a mystery that nobody really knows exactly what they need to survive. If we find something that works for this species, that could be adapted for other similar species. You know, no promises because you can have two species that are very similar 
but just need completely different things. But it's at least a kind of jumping off point to start testing some new things with other species too. Just to be clear, you don't raise these octopus to sell? No, we do not sell any animals. We are only using them for research. The way that we are funded is by giving these uh, public tours. And, you know, people pay to come in and be able to learn about the octopus that we have there, have a little bit of an interaction where they can put their hands at the surface of the water in their tank, and the octopus can choose to come up to them if they feel like it. We never force the animals to interact with people, but, you know, most people in aquariums and stuff would agree that uh, octopus need some stimulation, and human interaction is one of those activities that can kind of enrich things for them and give them something different to do during the day. And so we see that most of them do choose to come out and kind of play with people's hands for a little while, and then people have an opportunity to feed them. And you folks are at a point where you're looking to rebrand and maybe expand. Yes. So we're hoping to kind of rename ourselves, do a little rebranding, and the plan is to remove the word farm from the name. There is just a lot of kind of confusion by saying that. We get a lot of people who kind of misunderstand what we're doing and believe that we are farming them for food, which we are not. So we want to just be able to kind of emphasize that we're doing this for research and education and we're not actually farming them for consumption or sale. We hope to be moving to a larger facility where we can really expand our uh, research capabilities. Our entire facility is outdoors. That makes it very difficult for us to do trials using uh, photo period or the amount of light that they see per day and also uh, with temperature controlled variables. So by moving to someplace where we could have an indoor lab with more controllable conditions is going to really allow us to move further with our research. People who work with animals do it because they care and they love animals. It is hard work and it's not always as rewarding as we would like it to be, mm-hmm. but when you are passionate about something and you really care about it, then you're willing to go through the, the difficult times to hopefully get that reward in the future of actually having done something that will make a difference in the world. That was Dan Jackson, manager of the Kanaloa Octopus Farm, discussing the facility's research on the day act of octopus. And that winds up our uh, week-long series on aquaculture. You can check out all the stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student with a kindergarten to grade 12 admissions open house January 21st. Registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. For women who date men, the pursuit of pleasure isn't just personal. It's also a centuries-old political struggle. You're this modern woman who deserves pleasure, and yet there's so many factors that makes that not the case, from misogyny to internalized shame. Author Nona Willis-Aronowitz on her book, Bad Sex. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know what philanthropist funded the construction of the Library of Hawaii. The gentleman in question never set foot in the islands. In fact, he was born nearly 7,000 miles away in Fife, Scotland. Need another hint? Well, in the late 19th century, he led the expansion of the United States steel industry, becoming one of the richest men in American history. In the last years of his life, however, he donated nearly 90% of his fortune to various causes. It was Scottish-American industrialist and uh, business magnate Andrew Carnegie who donated $100,000 to the Library of Hawaii. It was one of 2,500 libraries that Carnegie personally funded. There's a Carnegie Library in nearly every state with the exception of Alaska and Delaware. They're also in 13 other countries across the globe. Many Carnegie Libraries, including the Library of Hawaii, can be identified by their front columns near the entrance of the building. And congrats to our winner, Ilarka from Makakilo. You got it right. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. all fans of South Asian cinema, the Doris Duke Theater at the Honolulu Museum of Art kicked off the new year with its annual Bollywood and South Asia Film Festival. The lineup includes Mira Nair's groundbreaking 1991 classic Mississippi Masala, recently restored in 4K, showing on the big screen. The conversations Lillian Song sat down with University of Hawaii Associate Professor Sai Padodika to talk about the joy of sharing culture through movies. My master's degree is in film studies, German film studies, but I've always done film analysis and worked on Hindi cinema and Marathi cinema. South Asia in general has more than 400 languages. So you have to understand that South Asia is such a uh, region of such variety and diversity. So it's been my intention, and I have been pushing the museum also to include various different films, so not just kind of blockbuster Bollywood, but Mm -hmm. to bring Hindi movies and also uh, gradually regional language movies or films that have really excellent content that people don't get to see necessarily on, let's say, Netflix or Amazon Prime. So we try to always bring films that are unusual, that people haven't seen, but they're actually worth seeing on the big screen and show the variety of South Asian films to Honolulu audiences, to Hawaii audiences. It's been a pleasure to do that. And on tap this time around, there will be... It's a very eclectic collection. The one blockbuster that has just come out in India is called Circus, with like the biggest names in Bollywood right now. But also Mississippi Masala, which is a classic, which is sort of making a comeback at this festival. I saw a screenshot on the festival website, and I swear it looked like a young Denzel Washington. But then I was like, no, it can't be Denzel. <laughs> and then Sarah Fang, who oversees the Doris Duke Theater, she confirmed that's, that's Denzel, Denzel Washington. That's Denzel Washington, yes. <laughs> 
This is a film by Meera Nair, who has a very prominent presence in the South Asian film history and especially in the diaspora. And this film features Sarita Chaudhary, who people actually have seen in many other movies since, and Denzel Washington. And it's a story about Sarita Chaudhary's character, her family coming to Mississippi from Uganda and sort of cross-cultural, cross-race relationships, love, and what all that means to personal and cultural identities and cross-cultural relationships and being global citizens. So it's a very important movie in the issues that are being talked about, especially in Hawaii and also globally. It's a classic by Mira Nair. Okay. And you said you did really want to make a point of not just focusing on Bollywood, but really opening up audiences, vistas to what's out there for South Asia film. We have a couple of very interesting films, uh, for example, Fire in the Mountains or Liar's Dice. They're both filmed in the mountains, in the mountainous regions of North South Asia, so in North India and Nepal, very picturesque snowy mountains of the Himalaya region. And they are very intense stories, especially of women looking, searching for either something that they have lost or something that they are looking to make meaning out of in their life. Mm and very sort of intense dramas about their searches for themselves and for their loved ones. As I was saying before, these are movies that are not easily available, for example, on Netflix or elsewhere, but they are definitely worth watching on big screen because they have stunning cinematography and beautiful landscapes that usually people are craving to see and they don't necessarily see such landscapes in very popular or blockbuster movies that have come to be associated with what Bollywood is. And that is what moviegoers who seek out film festivals are also tapping into. You guys did the hard work. I know that for me, when I go to these movies, I also love the exposure to the culture through the music and the soundtrack. If it has a very strong soundtrack, that also leaves with me after the film is shown. Yeah, you'll get a variety of soundtracks. For example, the big blockbuster will always obviously bring popular numbers that people dance to. But these more intense movies also bring these kind of melancholy kind of instrumental music that runs in the background. So not necessarily a big dance number, but definitely something that leaves you emotionally responsive. Yeah, It's that connection and everything resonates, the visuals, the oral, that always really stays with me. You definitely have a wide gamut of film. Yes. What is Four Samosas about? I love food. Four Samosas is, is a hilarious comedy, and it's actually, it has a very indie and hilariously funny feel to it, so I definitely recommend Four Samosas. It's a little story of people trying to pull off a heist. Yeah. Okay, um, you got me intrigued there. And we also have Last Film Show. Last Film Show has been making the rounds of various festivals. And it is something like sort of reminded me of Cinema Paradiso, also of this, this little kid who's losing himself in film history, really, and trying to enjoy the various moments that really speak to him visually. So, yeah. 
Okay, well, Sai, apart from being the organizer, you're also going to be performing for the festival closing event, Maya? Yes. So I am a graduate faculty in theater and dance, and in the dance department, I teach Bollywood dance as a credit class. And I've been dancing in the community also in Honolulu for about 10 years or so. And Maya is the finale of the Bollywood Film Festival in which it's an eclectic collection. I bring the students that I've had and also guest artists in and outside of UH to perform various different dances and music renditions. So we have, for example, very fast and catchy and very popular Bollywood numbers. We have Indian folk dances, group dances. We also have sort of a couple of devotional pieces that are part of Indian folk festivals. We have a cello solo rendition. Definitely, I can't forget that there will be two performers who will perform Bharatanatyam. It's a South Indian classical dance. So you have a, a wide range from Indian classical dances, folk dances with students, guest artists, and a wide variety of performers. So people who are there for the first time, first time ever seeing this kind of dance, you're really helping them get a taste, like a, a little sampler. Yeah, I think my shows I have always aimed toward bringing various artists from the community together and trying to see how we can have musical and movement conversations with each other. And rather than sticking to one style, this is my way of bringing, giving a platform and bringing all different performers to the artscape of Honolulu. Because a lot of times you can go to, let's say, Southeast Asian performances or East Asian performances. And I would like to look at this platform, this Honolulu Museum of Art Theater, and also the work that I do at the university as a way of connecting academia with the community, connecting artists with learners and experts and so on. All right. What do you see is the biggest benefit of this ethos you bring to dance? Hawaii is a really blessed place with so many cultures that live together and learn from each other. When I lived on the continental U.S. on mainland, I remember coming here and realizing so many art forms that I had not heard of or seen, and it was a magical place to come to. And I feel like my job is to bring the different things that people don't know and help them fill in the gaps, kind of make a wider and more artistic or more vibrant picture of South Asia and make it bigger and bigger in their hearts and minds and hips <laughs> to uh, contribute actually to the eclectic artscape that Hawaii is in a very emotional and grateful way. I always connect dance with mental health, and a lot of times my students tell me that this class is a little oasis of joy for them in their otherwise stressful life. And in my own life, dance has really elevated me from traumatic experiences or stressful periods of my life where movement and self-expression and joy is what is really at the forefront of 
Indian Bollywood dances, folk dances. There's a sense of community. There is a sense of not being intimidated by perfection, but rather really being joyous about expressing yourself, even in, in your face. So even facial expressions are part of dancing as well. Just looking at art and looking at performances and then coming on stage and performing yourself has had such a both empowering and joyous effect on not just me, but so many people who have seen and danced with us. I do this always at my festivals that at the end, everybody comes on stage and starts dancing. So I hope people come and come on stage, but also just, you know, watch us and feel happy and start the year with joy in their heart. That was Mumbai native Sai Parodeka uh, talking with our Lillian Song about the Bollywood and South Asia Film Festival at the Honolulu Museum of Art. There will be a team of performers to close the festival in the finale event Maya on January 21st. Tonight's feature, last film show, is India's submission for the Best International Feature Category of the Academy Awards 2023. Learn more on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Okay, well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. We'll be back on Tuesday to survey the tax landscape as the new legislative session prepares to kick off. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn. Our backyard quiz is thanks to John DeMello and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Tuesday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.